All right, as I mentioned uh, when we started, our message today will be titled Deeper Conversations and will be in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. In those passages that we're going to be going over, we'll be seeing how up to the moment of his arrest, Jesus continued to teach and to warn his disciples about remaining focused, keeping their eye on the ball, on the things that were really important, that really mattered. And as we go through this message and the reading today, all through verses 22 to 46, we're going to be seeing some deep conversations that Jesus had that were taking place and that were meant to show us some important truths. So, as I normally do, let's, ask, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning through His Word. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, those that are here. I pray that they be blessed. I also pray those that are watching will also be blessed as, they, as this message goes out there. We pray for those who may not have been able to make it. I pray that you keep them safe, Lord. Um, wherever they may be, where, if, they're, if they're watching this as well. Lord, uh, we ask that you speak to us. Lord, we ask that you minister to us. Um, we want to hear you with these uh, conversations that you had with your disciples. We ask that you show us what it is that we need to know. And uh, may your light shine brightly here in this room today. Um, thank you again for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 22. And we'll be starting again in verse 24. Then a dispute also rose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called uh, have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, on the contrary, contrary, among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't, isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table, uh, at the table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging, 12, the, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told them, I'm ready to go with you to both prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. When we ended last week, we saw that as soon as 
the Lord's Supper was over, the disciples began to argue amongst themselves about which one of them was going to betray Jesus. Well, in these two paragraphs we just read, Luke tells us about how the Lord responded to another dispute the disciples had and about how important about and about an important conversation that now we first learn in verse 24 that somehow the disciples' argument shifted from who was going to betray Jesus to who should be considered the greatest. Now perhaps their argument had spread from the worst among them to who was the best and who would receive the best positions in Jesus' kingdom. And as all this argument and disputes are going on amongst the disciples, I imagine just Jesus sitting there and hearing these arguments and just thinking to himself, come on guys, really? Don't you understand that this is our last earthly meal together? I've told you what would happen. What would happen to me when we got here? And why are you guys arguing about the greatest? Haven't any of you learned anything I've taught you? Well, I, I guess I have to go back to the fundamental, fundamental teachings. So the Lord steps in, in the middle of their dispute and reminds them that in his economy, greatest was the very, the greatest was the very opposite of man's idea. You see, the kings of the Gentiles were commonly taught, were commonly thought of as the greatest persons. In fact, they were called benefactors. In Greek, the term benefactors literally means ones who do good. It was an honorary title that the government bestowed on princes, emperors, and the gods. These people required recognition and glory for anything they gave or did for someone else. For this reason, they bestowed these titles on themselves. So in reality, Benefactor described a system that promoted injustice and unfairness. It was a system of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It was a system of wealth, limited to the few, and poverty shared by the masses. It was a system of a few gifts and an immense amount of oppression. A system where the oppressed had to praise the oppressor for any small favor. A system without freedom, without opportunity, and without love and care. But in Jesus' system, it was not to be like that among them. The greatest among them, that was, that is their senior leader with the most experience must adopt an attitude as if he were the youngest with no experience, no leadership responsibility, and no honors expected.
whoever of them had decision-making responsibility should make those decisions as if he on the decision-maker. See, you do not seek for greatness or recognition, Jesus said. You seek for opportunities to be a doer of good for the rest of the family. That is the church family. That is the body of believers. So as in other occasions that we've seen throughout this gospel, Jesus then turned the question on the disciples in verse 27. If they really wanted to determine greatness, then he told them to look at the one at the table and the one serving. Who is greater, he asked. In the world they lived in, and I think also in ours, it says that the one sitting at the table. Jesus' perspective, though, was different. If you, lack, if you look back in the previous section, we saw that it was him who served the cup and the bread, not the one reclining at the table to be served. So he asks them, and, and by extension us as well, to make a choice. They must either accept the world's oppressive ways of honoring greatness or follow Jesus' example of becoming a servant or seeking the best for the family. So, again, he asks, will you be part of the last who will become first? Or must you be the first right now? What kind of mindset do you have? What's important for you? Do you need to be the first now or can you be a servant? What is it you're looking for? Are you looking to be nothing but, nothing but a consumer? Or do you want to be a producer? Do you want to give? It's very easy to just sit there and just take, 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 take and not give. But it's important that you, and you need to understand, you need to know that the Lord wants to use you, use your gifts that He's given you to share it with others, to minister to others. There comes a certain point in your walk where you have to start like wanting to, to give, to be, to serve others, not just to sit at the chair or recliner or whatever it may be and just keep on, serve, or keep on receiving, keep being served. I hope that as, you know, as we grow, as, you know, more people start coming and, and, and all that, that we'll have more people like that, that they just want to have a heart of, of serving others. Well, Jesus then took a moment to recognize how they had stood by him in his trials. They were with him from Galilee to Jerusalem in spite of the plots of the religious leaders and the fickleness of the crowds. They endured difficult, a difficult lifestyle with no financial resources, no place to live, and no guaranteed for food. But throughout Jesus' trials, they never fell away in a time of testing. Even when his followers a lot of his followers had turned their back and rejected Jesus. But all of them, 
had remained loyal, all except for the betrayer. So because of everything that they went through with him, he promises in verses 29 and 30 that their faithfulness would not go without reward. Just as the Father had bestowed the kingdom to Christ, he will bestow on them a king with him and eat and drink at his table. He then tells them that they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 21 verse, three, verse 14, there it, it informs us that um, when Christ returns and takes the throne of David, their names will be written on the 12 foundations of the wall of the new Jerusalem. So I imagine that upon hearing this, what Jesus said, it quickly shut down any further disputes, arguments about which one of them would be the greatest. I think they were starting to understand. Well, right after this, he immediately turned his attention. He directed his attention to Peter, or Simon, a.k.a. Peter, and revealed to him that he would deny him. This third post-supper uh, conversation began with Jesus reassuring Peter that although Satan had asked to sift uh, Peter like wheat, he, Jesus, had prayed for him. Specifically, may not fail. Now what this means is that Peter would undergo a severe test of faith and would also suffer greatly by the satanic attack. However, even though his faith would falter, the Lord confidently knew that Peter's failure would not be permanent. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, and you, when you have turned back. See, by saying this, he was telling Peter that once he's restored, he must return to the fellowship so that he can strengthen his brothers. For those of you, again, watching and listening, and you haven't been to church for months because of this COVID, it comes a point where you have to come back. Know it or not, your presence strengthens your brothers and sisters in the church. It lifts them up. It encourages them. I know that it encourages me seeing all you, all your faces here. It's not, again, it's not about the numbers. It's just about, you know, seeing your smiles and having conversations, seeing what's going on in your lives, maybe ministering to you, praying for you. It strengthens the body when you guys are, when you gals and, and guys are here amongst each other. So let me say once again, I invite you back. Come back and strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want you to keep in mind that something here about what he said 
that this churning back doesn't refer to being saved again, but rather to a place of rededication and restoration from backsliding. So in this case, Peter was already saved. He was already a saved man. But the Lord knew that he'd soon start going in the wrong direction and would have to be turned around. Thus, the issue here isn't the loss of the gift of eternal life, but that his disobedience would jeopardize his testimony and his discipleship. But without jumping ahead, it wasn't just Peter who was in danger of this. All the disciples would eventually flee and forsake Jesus upon his arrest. What made Peter different among them, though, was that he would also deny him. This was truly a humbling, this here is truly a humbling lesson for all of us. So how did Peter respond to these ominous words? Well, Luke tells us in verse 33, Lord, he told him, to you both to prison and to death. Essentially, he told him, Jesus, ride or die. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm with you all the way, regardless of what, what, what happens. This here gives us a peek into the mind and heart of Peter. And it reveals two things. Number one, that he absolutely had no idea of the danger he was in. And number two, he had become overconfident on his own ability to keep himself faithful. Well, as we'll soon see, his boast, I'm ready, would turn out to be empty words as Jesus' sobering prediction of Peter's denial would come to pass. Now, some will argue here about this, that Peter blatantly lied to Jesus. But to those who argue this, they have to ask this question. Have you ever felt that you could do something and then re later realized you were wrong? I was having this conversation uh, yesterday with, again, some of these pastors. It was, you know, afterwards and and we were talking about law enforcement. I was just sharing some, some thoughts and experiences that I was having. And I think whether, whether you're in the military or you're, you're in law enforcement, you always, you, you're given all kinds of training, all kinds of um, things to, 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 the, to teach you what you must do in certain scenarios or in certain, some, if something was to happen. And these, I know for me in these trainings, they happen pretty regularly. And they almost, they, they teach to you so that it becomes muscle memory. And all of us, I think all of us, you know, we say to ourselves, this is what I would do if, if something was, was to happen. But in all reality, we don't know. Nobody knows what they would do until that they're in that situation. 
And some people will fight, and some people will flight. You know, and, and whatever you decide, whatever you choose, that's, that's on you, that's between you and, and, and God, but, you know, we, we have to be careful when, when it, especially when it comes to spiritual things. When you say, you know, I'm with Jesus until the end. I go to jail, I go to prison, I go to death. Yeah, you know, I believe that with all my heart. You know, and I claim all these things, I will boast all these things. I hope every day, and I pray that if I'm ever in a situation where my life was on the line because of Jesus, that I would have, that I, I would be willing to, to, to give my life up for my faith. One of the best ways to know you will do that is by maintaining a strong relationship with the Lord, by, by being, to, to, to know Him through His Word, by staying in prayer, by having, you know, by being in fellowship, you know, all these things that will help encourage you. You know, I, I definitely think that those who are in those kind of places are more than likely to to be stronger when they're put in those in those uh, risky situations, life or death situations. But again, be careful about boasting about things, whether it's saying, "Oh yeah, I can cook a good steak," or whether it's about you know uh, saying that you're willing to to go to prison for Jesus. You know, just. Mind what you're saying. Think about it. So, again, it doesn't really seem that Peter was consciously lying here. Rather, he was unaware of both the spiritual reality and the spiritual Peter merely looked at how he felt at that moment. And in that moment... He felt like he was ready to do anything for Jesus. And as I touched upon the problem with relying on a momentary feeling is that it is that it isn't on a stable foundation. And like anything on an unstable foundation, momentary feelings will crumble when its foundation is shaken by overwhelming pressure. So although Peter felt brave here, at that moment, that bravery began to crumble when his faith was shaken by a servant who recognized him. Well, when Jesus heard what Peter had said, he brought him back to reality. He brought him back from his high horse he uh, checked them, basically. And uh, to the reality of the situation by giving him a final yet distinguishable prediction. The rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. By saying this, Jesus was emphasizing the immediacy of the denial in contrast to Peter's self-confident prediction about the future. 
Now, in Mark chapter 14, verse 30, the Lord is quoted as saying that before the rooster crows twice, Peter would deny him three times. In the other three Gospels, Matthew, here in Luke, and in John, the Lord said that before the rooster crows, Peter would, uh, would deny him three times. So, although there may seem to be a contradiction on this matter, a careful examination of this verse will reveal some good explanations. For instance, I'll give you one, or maybe two. Here, this may be a general reference to the common time at the rooster road crow, signifying the, the Roman third watch which was usually around 3 a.m. It's therefore possible that it probably didn't come till after the rooster Peter heard had crowed twice. Now, since Mark alone, since it's Mark alone who records the fact that the rooster did crow twice, we know that there was at least one other warning, if not even more, that Peter completely ignored, that it just went over his head. That first time he denied him, that rooster crowed, and he was oblivious to it. But the moment he heard that second crow ringing in his ears, he immediately understood how much wiser his Lord was than he. <clears throat> Well, in the, next two, in the next two sections we're going to be reading about, our Lord will have one final post-supper conversation with his disciple. And we'll also be seeing how, prepared, how he prepared himself for what he was about to go through. So let's go back to our passage or where we left off in Luke chapter 22 and <coughs> pick up in verse um, 35. Luke chapter 22, verse 35. He also said to them, When I sent you out without, without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now, whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them, about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. 
Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So after speaking to Peter, Jesus once again attempted to prepare his disciples for the conflict that lay ahead, for the issues, the problems that they were about to experience. He did that by using their past history to get them ready for their future actions. Now, earlier in his ministry, the Lord sent the disciples out without money bag, a traveling bag, or sandals. Basically, he sent them out with the bare minimum. And sure enough, those bare minimum essentials, those bare essentials, proved to be sufficient for them. So when the Lord questioned them at the end of verse 35, they had to confess that during that entire time, they didn't lack anything. But now the situation was different because he was about to leave them. And they were going to be entering a new phase of service for him. And thus, he issues them new marching orders to take whatever supplies and resources they had to survive. They, they had to survive for those difficult days that were about to come. Furthermore, this was what's interesting here, is that he specifically tells them that if any of them doesn't have a sword, they should sell their robe and buy one. Now, by now, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was fully aware that Satan had come after him in full force. And he knew that the enemy would now would eventually come after his followers in the same way, especially those disciples. You see, as soon as Jesus was taken out of the picture, as soon as Satan felt that he had victory over Jesus when at, at the death of, on the cross, he would be coming after his followers in the same way. He would all that full force of, of attack would now be directed at this at the disciples via natural and supernatural methods. Therefore, they had to be ready to protect themselves. Now, some have suggested that the sword was to be used as a defensive tool against human enemies, but never as an offensive, as an offensive weapon. But the problem with this is that Matthew 5.39 seems, seems to rule out the use of the sword, even for defensive purposes. I therefore lean in a direction with those who think that the sword was intended as a means of protection against wild animals or even perhaps some unnatural creatures that Satan may want to use to physically harm the disciples. And Jesus then explains in verse 37 why it was necessary for the disciples to take 
a money bag, um, a traveling bag, and a sword now. You see, up to this point, he'd been with them, providing for their temporal needs. But in a very, very short time, he would be leaving them in accordance to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12. So, as that verse and many others written about him came to, it, to uh, its fulfillment, the disciples would find themselves being persecuted and imprisoned. Not because of anything they did, but because of the Messiah. Because of the Messiah would be counted among the lawless. In other words... Everyone who opposed Jesus would now be opposing them and treating them as criminal accomplices. So, what did the disciples do with the information that they were just given? Well, instead of coming to Jesus and asking for more advice, more wisdom, Lord, Lord, what should I say or do? Or if I get arrested and you know, there's murderers right next to me. How should I talk to them? Why should I, you know, what, you know, things that I know that I, I think that I would ask Jesus if I'm going to be persecuted and I want more wisdom and knowledge and information about what, what to say and do. Instead of doing that, what did the disciples do? They took inventory of every, all their possessions, everything they had, and they produced two swords. Now, by doing this, they were implying that these would surely be enough for any problems that lay ahead. Well, the Lord saw this, and He ended this conversation by saying, that is enough, basically telling them that it wasn't necessary for them to buy more kind of, you know, just looking at him like, yeah, that's, that's good. However, there was an ironic twist to that answer. See, they, they apparently thought that two swords were enough to resist those who came to arrest Jesus. But as we'll see next week, this was the farthest thought from Jesus' mind. Well, after this post-supper conversation, all these conversations, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and that the disciples followed him. There on the western slope of the Mount of Olives is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was here that Jesus often went to pray with his disciples, including the betrayer, who knew this very well. Once, that, once there, Jesus gave them a prayer assignment that centered around their chief need, that they may not fall into temptation. You see, Judas and Peter weren't the only ones Satan wanted. He wanted all of Christ's disciples, and he would tempt each one of them. 
The Lord knew that only prayer in Scripture can successfully fight such evil power and overcome temptation. So perhaps the particular temptation which he had in mind was the pressure to abandon God and his Christ and the, as the enemies closed in from all around them. So that's, I think, Jesus' advice for all of us too. When we feel the pressure, when we feel things getting hard and difficult, and, you know, to just pray that we may not fall into temptation, that you may not fall into temptations. I know that, you know, I, I have to be careful when it comes to, to life's pressures. I know that I'm susceptible to, to look at the bottle and think, oh man, my problems will quickly go away if I just take a few swigs out of that. You know, and, and there I go, you know, just falling into temptation. You know, if I just look at that video, I'll feel a lot better about myself. And, you know, or if, you know, if I take that drive to that one place, I'll, all my problems would go away, whatever it may be. You know, if you're in that place, pray. Feel the pressure all around you. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Well, after he says that to them, he leaves the disciples about a stone's throw away and further into the garden where he prayed alone. And it seems here that he probably fell on his face, proned out, just crying out to God the Father, to his Father. His own prayer was that if the Father were willing, that he take this cup away from him. Nevertheless, he wanted the will of God to be done, not his own. Now we understand this prayer to mean that if there is any other way by which sinners can be saved, then, then by me going to the cross, reveal that way right now. There's Lord God, Father, if there's any way that mankind can be saved besides me having to endure the punishment, endure the ridicule, the, the, the torture, the pain, the death, please reveal it to me now. Let me know. Man, what a prayer. The heavens, however, were silent because there was no other way. Now, the reason I say this is because unlike other denominational views, we here at Fresh Vision Church don't believe that Christ's sufferings in the garden were part of his atoning work. The full work of Redemption was accomplished during the three hours of darkness on the cross. But Gethsemane, 
was in anticipation of Calvary. So again, there as he, Jesus prayed, he knew what lay ahead. He knew the cup of the blood of the new covenant had to be spilled, of the new covenant had to be spilled. Yet he, as a human being, I think as any human being, any of us, didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to die. He had these emotional connections with his disciples. You know, he loved them. He loved laughing and he loved just, you know, being with them and ministering to people. And he wasn't looking for, he knew he had, that had to be done, but he wasn't looking forward to the pain. He wasn't looking forward to dying. But he knew, he knew it had to be done because there was no, again, there was no other way. But even, see, even in that moment, when he asked if there was, if there was an, if there were another way, he continued to submit to the Father because he knew the Father's will was best. The Father's will was what he always prayed, what he always prayed for and, and did, even when the human side wanted something else. Well, our Lord did find an immediate answer to his prayer, but in a somewhat unexpected way. Rather than tell him what to do, God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen and encourage him. The angel's presence reaffirmed what Jesus knew. He had to face the task that God had placed before him. He had to go to the cross. But he would do so with a heavenly presence, heavenly strength, and heavenly nourishment. Still though, Every minute in that garden was spent in anguish as he sought God's will for his life. Just like us, he faced a difficult decision and suffered emotional distress while he tried to make it. Luke then gives us one of the most powerful images in the entire Bible and one which isn't found in any of the other Gospels. We're told in verse 44 that our Lord and Savior became so emotionally involved that He perspired profusely. His perspiration became so heavy that it didn't run like little rivulets like water. Rather, it dropped from his pores, from the, every pore of his skin, as, as if each drop of sweat were as heavy as a drop of blood. In one of the commentaries I read, someone wrote, there have been cases in which a person in a deliberate state of body or through horror of soul have had their sweat tinged with blood 
Cases sometimes happen in which, through mental pressure, the pores may be so dilated that the blood may, that blood may issue from them, so that there may be a bloody sweat. So you guys see that it may be entirely possible that his sweat may have been tinged with blood from the burst capillaries and the dilated pores on his brow. That's how intense he was praying. Now, if this was actually the case, I want you to consider for a minute, I want you to consider this for a minute. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam stood in rebellion against God in Gethsemane. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 tells us, tells us that the last Adam knelt in submission to God. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam was sentenced to work by the sweat of his brow. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam agonized so deeply that blood flowed from his brow. I say this because perhaps you might be saying, some of you might actually be thinking this or going through this, life is hard. My job isn't going right. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are distanced. They're acting up. They're not behaving. Why should I press on in faith? I'm tired of living by the sweat, sweat of my brow. I'm tired of dealing with rebellious kids. You know, I'm tired of the fights with the spouse. I'm tired of always getting reprimanded at work. And, you know, life sucks. It's hard. I hate it. I'm tired of making ends meet. Again, I'm just plain tired. When you feel tired because you're sweating as part of a falling humanity, consider Jesus. You might be sweating it out, but have you ever strived so hard that you've actually bled from your forehead? what Jesus did. Friends, you should know this by now, but life is hard. It's part of the curse humanity brought down on itself. We all have sinned. We all have messed up, are messed up. And in the New King James Version, Proverbs thirteen fifteen says, the way of transgressors is hard. But understand that although it's hard being a Christian, it's a lot harder not being a Christian. If we didn't know Jesus, he would still have, or we would still have the same problems, but we had, we'd have no access to the one who solves them. Well, in the last two verses that we read, 
Jesus' prayer time came to an end. It was time to get back to the world of rejection and rest. So he walked over to the disciples, hoping that they were following his instructions, hoping that he would find them in prayer. But instead, he found them sleeping, exhausted from grief. Now, this is interesting, too, because it, it tells us that sometime while Jesus was praying, when, again, he was only a stone throws away, so they had an eye on him. They could see what he was doing. Sometime while he was praying, and, and again, in anguish, and maybe they saw the, the sweat, the cries, what he was saying to his Father up in heaven, Finally, it hit them. Finally, they realized, they began to see the reality of what Jesus had been saying all along. And now it is starting to creep into their consciousness or their consciousness. Wow. He's serious. He wasn't just making it up, he wasn't just pulling our leg, he wasn't just exaggerating. He really is going to die. So they themselves began grieving his passing while he was still with them. But unlike Jesus, their grief wore them out. They got tired of grieving. Unlike Jesus, where he was just in anguish and in his face on the ground and on the dirt and crying out to his father. The disciples were grieving too, but they're tired. They got sleepy. I imagine, I think of those moments as a kid. Have you ever cried yourself to sleep? You know? And maybe that's what happened to them. They just cried themselves to sleep. But, again, what was tragic here is that while they slept their grief away, the reality is that they yielded to temptation by not praying for power, the power to withstand that temptation. So here, again, Satan had won the battle. But Jesus didn't just let them wallow in their defeat. He invited them once again. He told them, get up. Get up and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. And that's what he's doing for all of you today. All of you who have yielded to temptation. He's telling you, don't stay down. Don't stay asleep. Get up and continue to pray that you may not fall into temptation. Yeah, okay, this, the devil won this particular battle, but don't stay down. He's just going to keep attacking. He's going to keep kicking you while you're on the ground. Don't allow that to happen. Get up. Come to me. And we'll fight. We'll just keep fighting the devil together. So if you fall, and we all fall, no one is perfect. Even as Christians, even as saved Christians, we still 
all fall and, and, and mess up. Just don't stay down. He doesn't want you to stay down. Get back up. Come back to him. He will forgive you. He will embrace you. He will continue to love him, or love you because you're his child. If you don't know the Lord, if you haven't opened the door to your heart, if you haven't met him, if you haven't, don't have a relationship with him, come to the cross today. Come to the cross and be born again. Leave that old life behind. It's not going to lead you anywhere. It's only going to lead you to death and destruction. And in the end, to eternal torment. But if today you seriously want to be born again and have a relationship with God and Really be a follower of Christ. I, I want to invite you to, to the cross and lay your sins before him. Let go of that baggage that you're holding. But you must understand that you must confess that you're a sinner, that you're not perfect. You must believe and trust that who Jesus says, who, that Jesus is who he says he is. He's God's only son. And if you confess him, he will, you will be saved. So if that's what you want to do, if you're ready to, to give your life, surrender your life to Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer to accept him into your heart. So wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And if you're at home in a safe place, you can kneel as well and pray this. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins and confess you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you pray that, reach out to us. We want to help you in your next steps. Um, there's more about this Christian life than that, just saying that simple prayer. There's obedience and there's gaining more knowledge and wisdom and growing in your relationship with God the Father and and knowing Jesus even more. So we want to help you with that. So contact us, call us, email us. Um, <clears throat> if you're here locally, again, our doors are open for you to come and, and, and check us out. Where we meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. on the corner of Hondo Pass and, and, and not Dyer, Hondo Pass and Gateway. If you go to Dyer, you're going too far. Yeah, you've gone too far, so uh, it's not that way. Um, so yeah, come check us out, and we'll give you a Bible, and we'll talk to you, we'll pray with you, and, and uh, we'll, we want to hear your story of how you came to the Lord. Once again, I want to thank you for watching and listening. I hope everyone has a great week. Um, I look forward.
to to being again uh, with you next week and 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 continue on with chapter 22. Once again, have a great week. Farewell and God bless. <laughs>